You're listening to a podcast from Red Sea Church, a community of faith in Portland, Oregon, whose mission is to draw to Christ, develop in community, and deploy into culture. Good morning. My name is Josh, and I get the privilege of bringing uh, the message out of the book of 1 Peter to you guys. Uh, A couple of years ago, I had a really interesting uh, experience related to the church. Uh, I heard that the group from Waynesboro Baptist Church was coming to my hometown. If you guys are familiar with this group, they're the ones that protest a lot. Uh, They're the ones that hold up really mean signs and stuff like that, that God hates certain groups of people. Um, They're, anyway... They're not a great group. Uh, And I heard they were coming to my hometown, and they were going to be protesting at one of the local Catholic churches uh, because they disagreed with some of this church's kind of, I guess, liberal-leaning theology. Um, So I heard they were coming to town, and and so I invited my girlfriend to come with me. Uh, Job, Jamie. And uh, it was a really interesting scene. So we show up in our our downtown at this, this older church. And uh, really interesting scene. So you had this big flight of stairs leading up to this big, beautiful Catholic kind of cathedral. And at the top of the stairs, you had this group of like really sweet, (laughs) you know, group of nuns, you know, up there looking really flabbergasted, you know, at this whole scenario. And at the bottom of this flight of stairs, you had this group of like guys with their signs like marching in a circle, uh, talking about how much God hates different things, including them. Right, so, so I went not necessarily in support of the Catholic Church because I didn't, I didn't actually agree with their theology, uh, but I went to stand against the fundamentalists, and not just their message; it was the way they were going about spouting off their message. And so we, me and Jamie, uh, chose to stand in the middle of the flight of stairs between these two groups of people, uh, and and we spent most of the time reading scripture about what God says is a loving response to one another inside of the church, right? That's, this is what God's Word says about how the church is supposed to love the church. Now, looking back on that, that scenario, as I was thinking about it this past week, it's really interesting because both of those churches that I, that I named, they, they were facing the same problem and that they had both been pushed on by culture, Right? They had been pressed on to change, and they had had two very different responses to that change. The fundamentalists chose to get angry, right? And the, the liberals chose to just conform. Those are the two responses to, to that conflict. I think in our text today that we're going to look at, the, this group of people that Peter's writing to is faced with the same challenge, is they are being pressed on by the, by the culture, right? It's, it's, it's trying to get them to conform, and they're going to have to respond to that, but Peter wants to speak into the church, and he wants to call them to loving one another in the midst of, in the midst of this conflict. As we've said the last couple of weeks, the book of First Peter, it's a letter written to a group of churches in what is modern-day Turkey. And the, the purpose of this letter is to build these people up against the pressure of the dominant Roman culture to, to conform. And, and what Peter's done so far in chapter 1 of his letter, he's laid this foundation of who God is, what God has done, and who His people are in light of that, right? 
Well, now in the letter, throughout the rest of the book of Peter, he's going to actually get to the, well, what do we do now? What, what, are we, what are we supposed to do in response to this conflict, in response to this pressure? And it's really interesting what Peter does in the section that we're going to look at today, because instead of just addressing like how the Christian is supposed to respond to the dominant culture, he spends this section alone in Scripture and looks directly at the people inside of the church and says, before we talk about them out there, we're going to talk about us. And we're going to talk about the way that we love one another and the way that we respond to conflict. Because the way that we as a church today, inside of the family of God, treat one another has huge ramifications on how we treat the rest of the world. So we're going to have to take a a close look at ourselves. We're going to get under God's microscope and look at our cross-centered love for one another before we spend the next couple of weeks talking about what's it look like to interact back with this culture. So I'm going to invite you guys to stand up with me. We're going to read 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 22. We're going to go all the way through 2.10. This is kind of the, 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 the thought that, that Peter has here. And so we've broken down this message and Peter's different thoughts as he's working through them. So uh, this, the words are up here on the screen if you don't have a Bible. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 22. Having purified your souls By your obedience to the truth, for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. Since you have been born again, not of a perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding word of God, for all flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flowers of grass. The grass withers, and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. So... Put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. Like newborn infants, long for the pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up into salvation, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves like living stones are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe. But for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone, and a stone of stumbling, it's a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Let us pray. Uh, Father, we thank you for the truth of your word as revealed through Peter. Uh, God, my uh, request to you uh, would be that you open up uh, the eyes of our heart to see ourselves the way that you see us. Uh, as we look at one another and as we relate to one another inside of this, this um, local church community, but also the universal church, um, give us eyes to see each other as brothers and sisters. Uh, give us love. Uh, give us endurance and steadfastness in our relationships. Give us the ability for the Holy Spirit to have the hard conversations that we need to have. We'd ask you to do this during our time in your word. Amen.
When I started studying through this passage of Scripture this week, uh, I made the mistake of coming to the text with uh, a lot of my own assumptions and bias. I don't know if you guys ever do that. You ever, ever, Royce doesn't, the rest of us. But uh, if you ever like open up the Bible wanting it to say something, and it's so easy to read it saying the thing that you wanted it to say, right? Uh, so you have to be careful as, a, as you're studying the Bible. Every bit of Scripture was written by a particular person to a particular audience with a particular message. So we can't make it say whatever we want it to say. And so I approached the text, and I wanted it to start speaking about how we are to relate to the culture. When I read about love and not slander, you know, I automatically started going into my mind about all of those churches out there and the way that they, you know, talk to the culture or hide from the culture. But then as I actually started studying through Peter's letter, uh, I realized that he was actually talking about conflict inside the church and the way that the church responds to one another. Now, Peter's going to get to how the church is meant to respond to the dominant culture. Next week, uh, we're going to look at that, uh, and then we're going to continue to unpack that throughout the, the rest of the letter. But why does Peter now, in the text, stop, and, and what I feel is kind of a stop of momentum, like where I thought he was going, and says, okay, church, Let's talk about us. Let's have a family conversation right now about what it means to be called the people of God. And I think this is why Peter does it, although he doesn't say exactly why he's doing it, but it makes sense. I think what happens is as the, as the, the culture presses on you, as conflicts come from outside, the way that you choose to respond to that conflict many times creates a conflict, right? Right? I mean, how many times in your relationships, say marriage, do you have a financial conflict? And how you think you should respond to that conflict and how your spouse thinks you should respond to that conflict creates a conflict, doesn't it, right? So Peter knows these conflicts are coming. He knows as the the church is pressed on and they're going to have to wrestle through really difficult cultural issues. And all these people have come out of that culture, right? I mean, the majority of people that I think Peter is writing to are Gentiles. They're Roman citizens. We know there's a couple of Jews that are in there, but these are people who have had to step out of a culture into a new culture, and they're just swimming in the midst of what does it mean to now be the people of God? And, and how they figure that out and what they decide on creates all types of conflicts, right? We see this in the book of 1 Corinthians as they're fighting over what type of meat you can eat, right? These are, these are real issues that that they're all dealing with. So look what Peter says right at the beginning as he kind of lays this foundation for this group of believers and how they should interact with one another. In verse 22, he says, "...having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. Since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding word of God." Peter, right there in in that short sentence in 22, is going to recap all of what he just said in chapter 1, having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth. That truth being that they were ransomed by the blood of Christ, and now they are a part of the family of God. Royce went through and unpacked this last week. He's calling them to remember that their souls have been purified. Well, then what evidence is there in their life of this supposed purification? Well, he then says it, obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love. 
What type of a love? It's not a neighborly love, is it? It's a brotherly love. Well, why is it that he calls them to a brotherly love? Because they're a part of the same family, right? A part of their new birth, their being born again into the family of God, means that they have inherited brothers and sisters in Christ. They actually have a new paternal family. And he appeals to family love as the standard to how they are to interact with one another inside of God's family. Well, he's not the only one that does this. Many of the New Testament writers do this. It was interesting to see Paul do it in the book of Romans. Now, Paul spends the first 11 chapters of the book of Romans unpacking his theology, right? It's very heady, the first 11 chapters. Salvation by grace as opposed to salvation by works. It's really funny that it takes Paul 12 chapters to do what Peter did in one, right? But they both unpack it. And then they both stop, and the first thing they do is say, love one another. Look at what what, uh, Paul says here in the book of Romans. This is Romans 12, 9 through 10. Like I said, he's unpacked his theology, and he says, let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection, just like Peter. Outdo one another in showing honor. It's interesting the language is so similar between these two authors. Now, we know that both these authors are speaking to believers because right after this, they both take the time to specifically speak to the unbeliever and how to interact with the unbeliever. So this lays a a framework for how we are to handle conflict that rises inside of the church. Our first identity in dealing with any type of conflict, whether it is a local church like this one or a universal church like the other churches in our neighborhood and in our world, is we are to approach conflict as brothers and sisters in Christ. Now, if that's true, why is the church so known for fighting, right? I mean, why do we have this reputation for, for running around and going to all these different churches, for, for speaking behind one another's backs? Why do we have this reputation? I believe it's because we don't know how to handle conflict. There's a reason that in our Pathways model, what it means to be family, what's the first thing that we put in that? What's the first pathway to being family? That's a question. No, Royce, you can't answer. We have three pathways to be in family. What's the first pathway? Peacemaking. Yeah. There's a reason we chose to put that one first. Because we're naturally going to fight. I am sinful. I know. That's shocking. I am going to sin against you. I can't tell you guys how many times people have come to me and said, you know what you did a couple of years ago? When you said that, and I'm like, that was three years ago. You've been holding on to that for three years? We don't know how to handle conflict. What about all the church splits, right? Now, many of these splits are for theological reasons, right? But many of them, the way they go about happening are so ugly, right? They're not loving, 
It's because we don't know how to handle conflict. Let's look at the example that I started off uh, the message with. Uh, you guys who have been around Red Sea uh, for a little while, uh, you guys know we use the peacemaking ministries material. We're even blessed in this church to have someone that does it for a living. Uh, so think back to our peacemaking days. If you've ever read Resolving Everyday Conflict, looked at the peacemaking material that we have here at Red Sea, we have the slippery slope of conflict. You guys remember this? Okay. It's really interesting on two different ends of the slippery slope of conflict, two wrong responses to conflict are attack responses on one end and escape responses on the other. And the book spends a lot of time talking about these, and then it talks about peacemaking responses uh, right in the middle. If you want more information about these, there's a brochure in the lounge on the shelf. We even have a book out there called Resolving Everyday Conflict. But it was really interesting. The two churches that I talked about in my message, they responded to a conflict on opposite ends of the spectrum, didn't they? The Waynesboro Church When pressed on by the culture, when a conflict arose, they chose to attack, right? They are looking for a fight. That's all they're doing is looking for a fight. They're always trying to find another fight to go out and pick. And if you are looking for a fight, it's because your soul has not been purified, right? The blood of Jesus has a lot of work that still needs to be done. If you want to know what's on the inside of a person, just push on them. Press on them and see what comes out. If you attack when being pressed on, it's a wrong, it's an unbiblical, it's an unloving response to conflict. And Peter, he's going to go and say some pretty dirty things that will come out of a Christian when they're pressed on in just a minute. But attacking, it's an unloving, it's an unbiblical response to conflict. On the other end of the spectrum, you have escape responses. You have running away, right? We see this in the church all the time. This is what happens when you choose not to talk about something. This is what, this is what happens when you choose to distance yourself from people that you disagree with or when you hold a grudge against someone. I think another escape response to conflict, you know what it is? It's just giving in and giving up. It's compromising. I think that's what that church had done. Instead of of fighting the hard fight, they just kind of gave in to the pressure to conform. It's a lot easier to conform, isn't it, than it is to to stand your ground, to love, and to work through a conflict. I believe running away or conforming is also an unbiblical response to conflict. Now, this brings up a huge challenge, especially in the way that we relate with the culture. Because our culture, a dominant view in our culture, is loving someone, is accepting them the way that they are, right? That's a message that's preached from every movie that you or our children have ever grown up watching. Love me the way that I am. What's meant by this is love me and don't ask me to change, right? Now, when we take that message and we compare it to the gospel message, the gospel says, I love you despite the way you are, and I love you enough to ask you to change, right? So then when we don't confront, it's because we're just running away. We're refusing to face someone. We're refusing to deal with the conflict 
And when you think about the gospel response to conflict, were we all in a conflict with God? Yes, we were born sinful. We continue to display it. Did God avoid the conflict? Did it cost God anything to deal with the conflict? Yes, it cost him his son, but he chose to deal with it. And so we then now, as receivers of grace, as receivers of uh, uh, God has, has satisfied that conflict, he now gives us a ministry of peacemaking that we are to then take back into our relationships. So how do we not attack, but then also not run away? You know, how, how do you... How do you respond to someone in love who's attacking you? How do you respond to someone in love who's sinned against you over and over and over and over again? Well, Peter's going to give the same answer that he has multiple times in this letter. He's going to say, by having an eternal perspective. Look at what he says here. It says in verse 24, all flesh is like grass, all conflict, right? How many of our conflicts have to do with flesh? 99% of them. It's me and you and our conflict. All flesh is like grass, all its glory like the flowers of the grass. But the grass withers and the flowers falls. But the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. Any suffering that we will endure in conflict is physical, it's earthly, it's painful but it will pass away, just like the grass, just like the flowers. We, inside of this church community, can have hard conversations, and we can persevere through conflicts because God said, I am in you, and you are in me, and my will will be accomplished. That perspective on our conflicts, it gives us strength to endure to have the hard conversations because it appeals to something greater than just the immediate relationship. It appeals to our relationship with God. But Peter here, he doesn't just say this is a right response to conflict. He gets into the nitty-gritty. He says, and here's what we don't do, right? Chapter 2, verse 1. So, so church, people of God, not culture, right? Not Hollywood, not the government. He says, church, put away all malice, all deceit, all hypocrisy, envy, and all slander. Like newborn infants, long for the pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up into salvation, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. Those words that he leads out to with in chapter 2, are, are, I don't think are that familiar, so I, I looked up some synonyms, just in case we're confused about what he's saying. He says, therefore, church, put away spite, put away revenge, put away ill will, put away lying, put away empty talk, put away insincerity, put away pride, put away arrogance. Put away maliciousness. Put away coveting. Wow. Peter, 
He's going to use the same put-on, put-off language that we've talked about here at Red Sea before. The, many of the New Testament writers use the same language. That, that put-away language when he's referring to those list of vices, he says, I want you to rid yourself of these things. And then I want you to put on or crave pure spiritual milk. I love that language, rid yourself, like literally strip yourself of these things. I love the visual in the Shawshank Redemption when, when Andy comes climbing out of the sewer, right? He, for his, to reach his freedom, he's had to climb through like a mile of sewage and he climbs out of the sewer and he rips all of his clothes off and he stands there in the rain, right? That's what Peter's trying to get us to visualize. Rip these things away from you like they're a disease. But then he says, I, I want you to, to, to put on, I want you to crave, I love this, I want you to crave spirituality like a baby craves milk right? When a baby is hungry for mom's milk, will anything satisfy? Dads, can I get an amen, right? Yeah, you've been there, and they're like, I can't help you, you know? Like, I'm sorry, because that baby wants one thing and one thing only. And Peter says, here's your visual. I want you to crave something like a baby craves milk. Well, what is the pure spiritual milk that he calls us to crave? Well, let's think about it. It's something pure. It's therefore, it's something that's not defiled. It's something that will nourish. It's something that will bring life and health. Well, it can only be one thing. It can only be the Word of God. It can only be our daily bread, that truth that we ingest, that feeds us and nourishes us. Peter calls them out of their filth and into the nourishment of God's Word so that they may grow up into salvation. That's why we can hold the Bible and we can stand on it and say, truth, God's Word, and we shall not compromise on truth. It doesn't matter if I like the truth or not. I didn't write the truth. God did, and we will stand on that thing. And when we get in a conflict inside of this church community, we will continue to go back to the Word of God as the, the roadmap for how we function together in relationship, and we will submit ourselves to it. How are we going to be able to remain in a relationship as a church through all this filth, through all this hurt, through all this pressure that will continue to come? Peter says it. You will be able to survive because you have tasted and seen that the Lord is good, right? I've tasted something, and I, I want more. There was this real funny tirade that happened this past week on the St. John's Facebook page. I love to bring up the St. John's Facebook page because it's like my connection to all things Portland. And uh, so somebody got on the St. John's Facebook page this week and was complaining about the service over at Santa Cruz, over at the Taqueria, Right? I know, it's hard to believe. If you've ever been to the Taqueria here in St. John's, you know what I mean. But the person was complaining that the guy at the counter was not friendly when they purchased their meal, right? He did not smile once, 
And they were not going back there. So they got on a page of 15,000 people to air their grievances about the guy at the taqueria who didn't smile. Well, the funny thing was, as everyone started chiming in, you know what they said? Who goes there for the service? (laughs) Right? I mean, the bathroom makes a dive bar look nice, right? It's, It's not good. It's in the back of a grocery store. Most people don't even know it's there unless someone told you the secret about it. Why do you go there? Why is there a line out the door at lunch every day? Because it's good, right? (laughs) I have tasted and seen that the burrito, the asada burrito is good, and so I shall return. Amen? Right? Peter's saying, you guys, if you've tasted something that's good, You'll endure, right? Because he's appealing to something beyond the relationship, beyond the sin, beyond the conflict, to a good God. Man, we can endure. We can press on. We can deal with conflict because we've tasted something that's good. But Peter doesn't just stop there. He doesn't just appeal to, to, their, to their actions, he, he then appeals to their identity and their sense of worth, right? And this is, it gets kind of confusing here, so we're going to have to unpack this a little bit. In, in verse 4, look what Peter says, chapter 1, verse 4. He says, as you come to him, a living stone, rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ, for it stands in Scripture. And then he's going to quote Isaiah. He says, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe. What's Peter getting at here? What Peter's going to do is give his listeners a visual picture of honor. And he's going to do it by using Isaiah. Now, in Isaiah 28, 16, Isaiah prophesied that there was something coming that, was, that God was doing in his work that the whole system of how people find forgiveness and how people find worth God was designing a whole new system. In the Old Testament, it was animal sacrifices that had to be brought to a specific place that had to be offered by a specific person, right? Sacrifices, temple, priesthood. But Isaiah prophesied that one day something was coming, that this whole new system was going to be built on. It was going to be the cornerstone, which everything was founded on. And it was going to be so much better than that old sacrificial system. It's going to be so much better than what God had done for thousands of years to allow people to be in a relationship with Him. Well, we know it's Jesus Christ, right? Isaiah prophesied that Jesus would come and He would now be the one sacrifice. And now, because of that sacrifice, all who believed in Him would be made pure. And now the temple of God would not just be a location, it would be a people and, a, and, a, and a, a part of God, the Holy Spirit, would now live inside of his people. And they would then become priests, a, a royal priesthood, being able to now proclaim the excellencies of God. 
And Peter says, just as God honored Christ by resurrecting him from the dead, you now are living stones. You now are the temple of God. You now have been resurrected like Jesus. You've been forgiven of your sin. You've been brought into the family of God. And because of what God did through Jesus Christ, you are valuable to God. You are precious. When God looks at us, he sees precious and beautiful and holy and righteous. But the amazing thing about the gospel is we don't deserve any of those things. Jesus made us those things. See, honor means to, to, to hold something in high esteem. Kids, you know, we want to get put on the honor roll at school, right? We want that principal's award. It's a position of honor. We want to win the Medal of Honor. But you have to do something to win the Medal of Honor. It's not a lottery. It's earned. You want to be the guest of honor at a banquet. But all of those things are because you did something to earn it. All humanity has worth and value because they're made in the image of God. But those who believe have even more worth and value in the eyes of God. And they didn't deserve it. Now, my relationship with you has nothing to do with with me being an elder at this church. It has nothing to do with my salary. It has everything to do with you or my brothers and sisters. And we will continue to endure together because God has chosen us and he's placed us inside of his family You are valuable, and you should be treated as valuable inside of this community. This should be a special, special place. If it's not, we're doing something wrong, and we need to repent. But Peter, he doesn't stop there. He's going to then go and give identity, more identity language to this position of honor. And and look at the identity that he he gives us in verse 9. He says, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that, you have a purpose, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of the darkness and into his marvelous light. Remember, once you were not a people, but now you're God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Mm. Wow. I love that language. Throughout the book of Peter, he's going to continue to, to speak about honor and worth to the people of God. And, and look at, here's just a few things that Peter says. He says, as recipients of God's grace and favor, how has God dis- displayed that to us? Well, first he called us, and then he elected us, and then he sanctified us. He brought us into his household We became children of God, and now God is honoring us with grace and favor demonstrated through sanctification, rebirth, inheritance, praise, salvation, redemption, life, goodness, blessing, an imperishable crown, exaltation, protection, and glory. All images that Peter uses to describe the people of God in his letter. 
That's how we should look at one another. But notice he says, you're a chosen race, you're a royal priesthood, you're a holy nation, you're a people for God's own possession. You, we today, since Jesus has died, we are everything that God had ever desired for his people to be. And he made us that way through Jesus Christ. That whole nasty, ugly story that we're walking through in Genesis that we'll do again when we get done with 1 Peter, all of that was leading toward creating a people for God's own possession. And it's done. The work has been accomplished. But he requires us to do it. It was for a purpose. He says that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. We have given a message of proclamation, a message of reconciliation, a message of peacemaking. When we gather together in relationship inside of this church, inside of, in, in one-on-one relationships and small group relationships and in larger corporate relationships with the church outside of, of this neighborhood, when we are together and this truth is so important. When we are together in relationship, we are doing something that is proclaiming the excellencies of God. When we are together and we're working through and we're loving and how hard it is and, and all the mess, we're worshiping. Right? That, that redefines conflict. It redefines our commitment to a community of God's people. Man. Now, if you guys noticed, I I skipped a section of text here. It was intentional. Because Peter doesn't just speak to the believer. He speaks to the unbeliever. Look at what he says here in verse 7. But for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. And a stumbling, and a stone of stumbling, and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. So, why would Peter stop here and address the unbeliever if he's writing a letter to Christians? Because because he is writing a letter to those people who are inside of the church community who are refusing to submit to the Word of God. And he doesn't just say, love one another, and if you don't feel like it, it's not a big deal. If you want to hold a grudge, if you want to not resolve conflict, if you want to let unforgiveness, you know, just get pushed to the side, don't worry about that. If you slander, if you deceive, it's not a big deal. Why is that? Because you cannot receive the grace and the forgiveness of God and not be willing to give that grace and forgiveness back out to one another. You cannot. You cannot be forgiven and not forgive. Jesus himself said, the way that you judge other people will be the standard in which I judge you. The measure to which you dispense my grace is the measure to which my grace is dispensed back to you. Man. So if we have unforgiveness in our lives, if there are 
uh, hypocrisy and gossip inside of this church community, if there's unresolved conflict and sin, it is because the message of Jesus Christ has not so deeply penetrated our hearts to lead to purity. And we are stumbling over the gospel. So then what's the answer to unforgiveness? Whether it's one-on-one relationships, your marriage, your immediate family members inside this church community, what's the answer to unforgiveness and resentment and anger and and grudges and hypocrisy and attacking and, and conforming and running away? It's the good news of the gospel that you have received mercy As we now turn our attention toward communion, as we always end our services, I think it's interesting that Peter here doesn't appeal to the grace that you've received. He appeals to mercy. There's a big difference between grace and mercy, isn't there? Grace is getting what you don't deserve. I think we understand that concept because we're forced to give grace out all the time. You have to, you're constantly required to give people what they don't deserve, right? Someone cuts you off in traffic, they deserve to get rammed. But we don't do that. We give them grace, right? Mercy is getting what you don't deserve. Or mercy is not getting what you do deserve, okay? Let me say that again. Grace is getting what you don't deserve. Mercy is not getting what you do deserve. Communion is a picture of mercy because your body should be broken. Your blood should be poured out. But we didn't get what we deserved. We were given mercy. And it's because someone chose to pay the sacrifice. Someone chose to pay the penalty. And that message of the gospel is meant to be demonstrated over and over and over in the life of the believer. Someone's got to pay the penalty, right? Someone's got to be willing to do the hard work to resolve and to love. As we take communion, as we sing these songs, as we continue to remind ourselves of the gospel, and we say the same thing over and over and over again, it's meant to remind us and to soften us to what we've received. The, the gospel, the, the truth of God's word is that we're all sinful. It doesn't matter what the sin is. We're all equally sinful in the eyes of a holy and righteous God. But we are all as equally loved in the eyes of God because of Jesus Christ. And because of that, we can forgive. Because of that, we can give and give and give and give and give because God did. Okay. As you come to the tables, I want you to think about your relationships. I want you to think about this community. And if there's any unforgiveness, if there's any resentment, ill will, slander, hypocrisy, gossip. Let's let's come to the tables. Let's repent of that because those are sins against God. That's the easy part. But then we have to go and we have to repent to the people we've sinned against. We have to display the gospel. Let's pray that God would give us strength to do that. Let's pray. God, we come before you. 
Father, thank you for uh, having a bigger picture. My, my mind is just so limited into what it means to be a part of a church and be a part of the church community. But you, God, you, your words through Peter, and as, as Peter realized these things, who we are, it just paints a bigger picture for why we deal with conflict and why we shouldn't run away and why we shouldn't attack. It's all because you did something through Jesus Christ. It's because you chose to deal with the conflict. Thank you, Father. Thank you for reconciliation. Thank you for coming and forgiving us. Would you now empower us to to have that ministry of reconciliation? Father, fill us with your Holy Spirit to give out what we've received. And we won't do it out of obligation but we'll do it because we've tasted something good. We've tasted grace and we've become gracious. Thank you for that. Father, do a powerful work in this community. Not only in us, but also just in your, your universal church as the culture is going to press on us. Would love come out? Would we go to our brothers and sisters in the church that we disagree with theologically in love? God, I don't know how to do that. I need you to do, help me do that, Father. Help me to have those conversations. Help us to have those conversations. And as we love one another, would the community see it and know that we're loving? Do this. Please, Father, do this. We ask this in your son's name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Red Sea Church. If you would like more information about Red Sea, including more audio messages, please visit us at www.redseachurch.org or contact us at info at redseachurch.org.